what I learned from that is that a tenant is actually a business partner. When you sign that lease agreement with a tenant, you're entering in a business contract with that person. You want to make sure that this person is not a bad actor, has good moral compass, has good financial stability, responsibility, and that can be traced by their track record. So you want to do that background check. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in US real estate. I'm your host, Reed Goosens, and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting-edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and or buy investing in the US, visit www.reedgoosens.com. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Charlotte Dunford. Now, Charlotte first moved to the US at the age of 16 by herself from her home country of China. Through a strong drive to succeed when once moving to the United States, she went on to build a path and a career of her own, building her own company alongside her business partner. She started Jones Creek Capital in early 2020. And from there, she has grown and now has an investor portfolio base of over 5 million people subscribed in her deals. Charlotte is also a certified associate in project management and speaks fluent Mandarin. And in her spare time, she enjoys playing the piano and doing equestrian or sports. I'm really pumped and excited to hear her story and her incredible background. But enough of me, let's get her out here. G'day, Charlotte. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We were talking in the in the green room before we got started about your origination of your name, and it was it's uh, it's always for those people out there who don't know. A lot of uh, Chinese people come to the U.S. or any Western country and have to change their name, which I think is a little bit arrogant. But it's uh, I love Charlotte as a name. Uh, do you want to give the listeners a little bit of uh, background on where you got the name from? Right. So when I first came to the U.S. when I was sixteen, I did not know much English. So I, when I first arrived, my host family asked me, "Do you have English name?" So I just literally came up with it on the spot because I just watched Charlotte's web and I just had Charlotte. And what really throws people off is my last name, Dunford, but that's because mm. I, I married uh, <laughs> last name Dunford. So that's really confusing for people when they say there's this is Charlotte Dunford and they look at me, they, they think what's going on. Even in the American citizenship a courtroom, everybody, they announced everybody's name and I was the only one that had a English first name and a last name. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. That's uh, I didn't even think about that. Um, so essentially, your whole name has changed now from what that's right. when you were born. That's, that's and that's... middle name and middle name. Wow, wow, that's wow. Right. What well, just for the listeners? What was the original? What was your original Chinese name? So my original Chinese name was Wu Xiao. Uh, that was my born name. My grandfather named me, and after, when I was at age ten, uh, my parents took me to a fortune teller. And Chinese people believe in fortune tellers when they do their names, all the feng shui, all the names and all that stuff. So they gave me the name Hu Jingwen. That's another name when I was changing that age 10. And then I used that name uh, up until I uh, became American citizen. Wow. Wow. Incredible, incredible journey. So with that being said, let's rewind the clock and dive in a little bit more to your background. Can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? Well, you know, it was actually for Chinese kid would celebrate Chinese New Year. So mm -hmm. during Chinese New Year, we would be given money after you say Happy New Year to your elders. So I actually made my first $100 that way. 
Um, and it would, unfortunately, it was, that was given away to my parents as Chinese parents are very uh, authoritative and they don't really give children that much uh, free space to manage their own money. So I had to give it up, unfortunately. But I did taste the um, the beauty of the dollar while I had it in my hand before I had to hand it over. And it would have been yen, correct? Yuan. Yes, yep. yen is, yep. yeah. The, the same, the same um, character, Chinese character, but yeah. 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 Well, awesome stuff. Well, now let's walk through your journey. You, you mentioned you moved to the US at 16. Let's talk a little bit about that. What, why was, why did you choose to move at 16, such a young age? Right. So I've always been a really competitive and motivated person ever since I was really little. So I would want to, the things I did as a kid was I would study the courses for the next semester when I was starting fourth grade during the summer, the previous summer. So I will be way ahead of everybody else when the new semester starts, semester, but new school term starts at fourth grade. So I was always ahead, always ahead of everybody. And um, when I got into high school in China, my desire became, I wanted to go uh, do somewhere greater, you know, to the United States. Um, I made my first trip to the United States when I was maybe 11 years old to a summer camp. That really inspired me. I was thinking to myself that, wow, I, you know, th there's a whole new world out there. That's coming from communist socialist China. America was a totally new, fresh, fresh uh, environment for me. So I really wanted to go. And during high school, uh, I studied uh, self-studying for the SATs. I figured everything out. I figured, what do I need to do to get into American University? I did extensive research. That's, that was great, great Google time. I was uh, soaking myself in the library. Uh, reading up on how to get there. So I figure out, you know, going to an American high school would really up my chances of getting to a good American college. So I applied online. The internet existed, but just not as, as good as today as Google. Uh, search engines weren't as, um, as great, but I was able to find a couple schools. So I took an offer from a really small private school, um, less expensive in Pennsylvania. So there I came. And your parents were okay with this? Like just no. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were really worried. I was the only child um, because mm. they were. I was born under the one-child policy, yep. and I was only sixteen. So you can imagine, as a parent, they had me earlier, uh, later in life too. So the, their only daughter going away to a country where they don't have any experience. They didn't even send me off to America. They just dropped me off at the uh, airport. So I got on the airport, a layover in Chicago, and landed in Philadelphia. They were worried. But I, they, they know me. They knew that I was very adventurous. I was ambitious. They knew that was my best future host in America. So they had to let me go. Insane story. That's that's the most sixteen year olds. I, I couldn't even imagine. Even when I was sixteen, like I was pretty, you know, competitive, but not no nowhere near you like you. You know, like and just going to a foreign country, didn't speak the language. Like that's insane. So kudos for you having. Uh, the courage to go off and do that. And and obviously we're going to get into the, now the story of what you built today. So just before we, you know, move on, how difficult was it, you know, assimilating to the American culture back in the day, particularly when you're 16 and hormonal and there's a lot of clicks and all that sort of stuff. You didn't speak the language. I'm sure you just wanted to fit right in, right? Right, right. So it was very challenging and it definitely took a learning curve, but Fortunately, I was only 16. So when, when you came to the United States as a, as a child, it's a lot easier than someone say like they're 50 or 40, you know, to assimilate to, into the American society. For me, I've always made it a priority that I want to 
integrate into the American society. So I remember the first day I got there, my lovely host mom, uh, who I stayed with, uh, offered me a Chinese cookbook that she purchased before I arrived there. Uh, she said, which one, which Chinese dish would you like, even though they're very Americanized Chinese, but they're very, very nice of her. So I told her, you know, I really, really appreciate this. However, I would like to eat whatever you guys eat, starting from the food. I, if I'm going to be in the United States for the long term and build a future here, the food and the everything else, I can't just let myself be spoiled into the Chinese culture. I didn't fly thousands of miles just to eat Chinese food. Awesome. So I, it, it was challenging, but I tried and tried and tried. And now I would say I'm, I am fully American legally <laughs> and definitely American in spirit. <laughs> uh, are your parents still back in China? Yes. Uh, do you get to see them much? No. Oh, uh, they came here. They've come here once um, for my uh, college graduation. Uh, but that was it. Oh, wow. Well, I could only imagine your yearning to go back and see them at some point. I've got family back in Australia. I'm the only one here as well. And mm -hmm. it's tough being halfway across the globe, particularly as I know you don't, You said you don't have siblings, but you know, other family members, seeing your grandparents, you know, obviously they may be here or not be here, like people's weddings, children that are born. Like it's, it, 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 it's a very tough it's very, to be halfway, it's halfway very across the globe. My grandmother passed away last year. And mm, she I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm Thank sorry you. to hear that. So... With that being said, let's get into what you've built. Jones Creek Capital, talk us a little bit about what, where that name came from and how you've gotten started in the real estate world. Right. So when I graduated from Georgia Institute of Technology with a business degree, so we call it Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, uh, the MIT in the South, or what, what we would like to call it, the MIT is Georgia Tech in the North. So I got into Georgia Tech and graduated, uh, took my first job as a business analyst uh, in the suburb of Alpharetta, only about 20 minutes away from Johns Creek. They're next to each other, the city of Johns Creek, where I reside right now. So right after I took that first job, I started buying real estate immediately. So the drive for that was because growing up in socialist China, uh, you're actually not allowed to own your own property. It's everything mm. is government provided. You can actually pay for it. But it's not really your property. Uh, it's all leased from the government for 70 years. So that's why um, with the strong family values that Chinese culture has, um, we've always wanted home. Home is everything, right? So that's what piqued my interest in uh, in real estate. So immediately after taking that first job, I used my salary to qualify for deals. And uh, the first deal was uh, south of Atlanta. It was a house hacking deal. For those of you who, um, who, who've been in real estate for a while, you know who, what house hacking was and uh, qualified for that deal. And then my second deal was a duplex in uh, the city of Calhoun, Georgia. Did very, very well, exited a couple of years ago. But when I moved from Atlanta to Johns Creek, the city of Johns Creek, where I live today, I started Johns Creek Capital. So that's where the name came from. Gotcha. And what is, what is John Street Capital focused on in terms of investment thesis right now? Right. John Street Capital is a private equity firm that focuses on mobile home parks, particularly small to medium level size mobile home parks. The thesis, really, the strategy is the, the blue ocean strategy, right? So we're not going after the parks that big institutional buyers are after, which gives us less competition. So we are looking for a higher cap rate upon entry with solid property fundamentals. So those are the most important things. So mobile home parks is basically the closest asset class I can think of is a parking lot. It's a parking lot asset class. You can also think of it as an HOA. So you're really just running on dirt, dirt underneath those mobile homes. You're not renting mobile homes. 
people get them confused, right? So mobile homes versus mobile home parks, you know, it, it, it's not the same thing. So mobile homes are like parks, right? So they are like their personal property. You actually get the title from the DMV for mobile homes. So what we're after is the land underneath. So, so the solution we provide is the affordable housing prices America faces right now, and we provide a piece of the puzzle to this uh, to to this big problem that we're trying to solve, and we're playing a major role in that, and that's how we're solving the problem. Gotcha. And are you buying in any particular states? Are you just keeping around the state of Georgia, or are you moving outside of that? Actually, most of our parks are in um, in the southeast and the Midwest, and then a couple of parks out um, in, in one in Maine, one in Montana, one in Arizona. So we really focus on relatively business-friendly, and some in Florida, but that's the southeast. So business-friendly states um, try to avoid those ones with rent control uh, because mobile home parks are already low on rent. If you uh, place rent control, you're pretty much placing a cap on how big your sorry. It's all right. Please cut that out if you could. My cat just <laughs> entered the screen. Um, I think that's awesome. We'll, we'll keep it in. I, I like that. I love animals. Okay. My, do my, my dog's on the floor here in my office today. He's, uh, he's breathing, Your dog breathing is heavily. <laughs> my cat is not, as you know about cats. So business-friendly stays not with rent control because the biggest money maker is really to raise the rents so that it catches up with uh, the other housing options. It's still the most affordable option, but there's a lot, meat, lot of meat on the bone. Mm -hmm. So if you put a cap on the rent control or there's a rent control in place, then that basically kills your revenue. And are you managing these assets yourselves in-house at, at Jones Creek? My partner does. So we mm -hmm. um, we manage everything in-house because small mobile home parks, I like bigger ones, you can hire an on-site property manager. Uh, it doesn't make economic sense. We always have an on-site person or on-site team who's on the ground for each individual park we have. However, we, we manage everything uh, in-house. Gotcha. Uh, because we don't think anybody else will care about your asset as much as you do. And we have ex expertise with the small to medium level uh, mobile home parks, which is a totally different animal from the bigger size parks. So we've kind of developed kind of proprietary technology in managing those parks. Gotcha. Because I know the, one of the big things that always comes around when I talk to people with mobile home parks, and I had Andrew Keel was on the show just recently. He is a big mobile home park investor. And you know, unlike multi, where I, I'm in multifamily, where I can go buy a thousand units in each MSA, right? And and you, know, you slowly work around. You know, you might have two or three big MSAs, and you've got three or four thousand units. Like that's not uncommon. On the mobile home park side, to get to scale, you have to do a lot more MSAs, which means there's a lot more spread out. Does there ever become a problem with you know just being too far out of reach to really keep an eye on what's going on with the park and all that sort of stuff? I don't think that's a problem. There are always uh, local contractors. Now, there's a limit on how far we go. Most mobile home parks in the rural setting, relatively. You won't find a mobile home park in the middle of Manhattan, for example, right? That that's just doesn't exist. So what you want to do is you have a 100,000 in population for MSA. Uh, so that's the, the kind of the minimum requirement. It has to be a close to MSA like that. With that kind of guarantee, you can have... Uh, kind of a, a guarantee of contractors, guarantee of tenant source. So there is a base there. There is economic factors there. So you don't want to be in a town that's dying in a in the middle of nowhere. Those small home parks are probably just need to die eventually, unfortunately. So uh, so that there's the minimum uh, requirement. For, give you let let's, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the deals that we sold 
last year we completed full cycle of we only held it for 22 months and uh, we have we haven't really visited the park we have we managed everything remote but we have boots on the ground from contractors locally we built relationships with them with them um, throughout the due diligence process so with that park we sold we delivered on the project level annualized uh, rate of return 25 percent wow that's great. That's fantastic. In terms of how you're finding your deals these days, what are you doing to source deals, keep motivated, you know, keep attracting motivated sellers and all that sort of stuff? You have to build up relationships. So we have relationships with past sellers, buyers, uh, brokers. Um, relationships with these people will get you lots of deal, good good leads and quality quality leads. So that's uh, the main source of deals, and it really comes down to underwriting it underwriting is almost everything so you want to we have a 15 parameters algorithm um, that we've developed based on all of the deals that we have right so we look at all of our 28 deals and actually we sold more but over 28 deals close to 30 deals uh, we've sold and bought before and we look at them and we look at their performance we pick the best performing ones the super performers and we look at them what's going right for them right so we aggregate all of this data and figure out 15 major parameters that make this deal go right. Now we also look at the ones that was, you know, less than stellar and maybe that we were able to turn around, but what really hurt us there? And we um, gathered this, these data and put that into algorithm as well. And think about what hasn't worked for that deal. So really those 15 parameters and this algorithm, proprietary algorithm that we have, that we've developed at John Street Capital really leads to the sourcing and the underwriting this eventual success because you know the saying you you make the money when you buy uh you have to buy right yep do you want to give us those a bit of an overview of those 15 parameters i'm sure it's the same it's not you know like we have same parameters with us and it's cap rate it's in place rents versus you know market rents it's you know population growth all that stuff like so what are you you know 15 i only spout off a couple of there but what are your 15 so 15 is, is, is a lot of parameters, uh, but I will give you a top three, right? Top three. The mm -hmm. most important ones, if you get those top three right, you're winning the 80% of the battle with. So the number one is tenant-owned home, right? What is a tenant-owned home? It means the tenant owns the home on the land. It behaves as a parking lot or a, an HOA, what the asset is designed for. So the tenant owns the home. They take care of the repairs and maintenance within the home. They take care of their own lawn care. So it really pushes the expenses on them. So, and the tenant owned homes usually has more private ownership. So the private ownership boosts the appeal of the neighborhood, which is really what you want in, in, in a parking lot. Because if you are the owner of HOA and you collect HOA fees, it's really like that uh, for your neighborhood. You want your tenants, your residents in your neighborhood to have a good private ownership, take care of their homes, and you know, if they're able to afford a mobile home, they usually is a, is proof. It's their track record per se of owning a home. You know, more responsibility, more financial stability and capability. So the number one ratio is that it has to be tenant-owned homes. Um, doesn't have to be one hundred percent because parks. You know, some parks just come with park-owned homes. So we want seventy percent, seventy-five percent and above tenant-owned home ratio in the park. That's minimum requirement. That's number one, most important thing. If you don't take away from this anything, it's a tenant home. Number two is utilities, right? So the biggest money loser in mobile home parks is utilities. If you have a leak break, you have a water break, if you pay for utilities, it's just going to drain on you. So utilities, we prefer 
public utilities, public water, public sewer, septic tank tanks okay, depending on their age, probably not well, definitely not treatment plant or lagoon for sewer because it's just too too risky, especially for a smaller park, right? To replace a lagoon a million dollars out. So what are you going to do about that in a smaller park? It doesn't make any sense. So you have to stay lean if you're in this niche. So public water, public sewer. That's number two, utilities. Number three is the how the utilities are paid. Actually, it's tied into the utilities, how the utilities are paid. The best case scenario, you want them to be able to uh, step meter. They're step metered, billed directly to the tenants. And the second best is that the owner is already collecting the utilities from the tenants. But be careful with that because a lot of times the broker, either brochure or the, the sellers will tell you that, you know, Tenants pay for utility, bill back to tenants, but they're actually not collecting them. So you got to verify that. So those are the top three. If you master those top three, you're 80% there. Awesome. I appreciate that. Do you ever go in and do submetering on properties yourself? Because given submetering isn't actually that expensive if you know what you're doing, and particularly if you have a smaller park, you could potentially go and be the value add by doing that. Do you do any of that sort of stuff? That's a big value add. Yes, is you can raise lot rent or you cannot. You cannot raise lot rent and push back utilities. So, a sub metering. There is a program called Metron. Um, they, they they do financing as well, so you can actually do financing. Uh, do the sub metering. So you you have to do that. Yep, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Quick question: Pivoting to how you're raising your capital, are you attracting any foreign nationals from China right now in terms of your investment strategy, or just purely focused on raising capital here in the U.S. From the U.S., American citizens, accredited yeah. investors. Any reason why why not? You know, I, I get a, I get a lot of people. You know, I wrote a book called Investing in the U.S. You know, about how to invest foreign. You know, so I get a lot of people coming and asking me. I, I assume people from your home country as well would want to come and say, "Hey, Charlotte, how the hell do I get into involved in your deals?" Yeah, right. So maybe I became too American, so I kind of actually lost some ties with my home <laughs> country. So, uh, uh, but however, I would say, you know, we're not technically against it. I've got Chinese investors on on, on board, but they live in the United States. Yeah. Um, but 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 it doesn't. So if you live in China, China is actually a special case as we're entering into the new Cold War era. So if it is a different country, Canada, Australia, France, Germany, Italy, wherever your listeners are from you know, Malaysia, Singapore, I don't care. But with the governmental tension that, you know, the spy balloons, the new Cold War, the things that's been going on in China, the policies they're making, it makes this process extremely complicated for both Chinese and U.S. firms to work together. Uh, for example, if a Chinese uh, citizen wants to do American um, investments is actually not possible. The government caps you at a certain dollar amount. They don't want uh, money to flow out of China. So if it is any other country, this is a completely different story. China, mm. we're, we're having a cold war. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. You'll be thinking about doing a business with the Soviet Union back in the Cold War era with the United States, which is very, very difficult and maybe a, not a very smart move. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it's also a lot of, and I don't say, I'm not saying China's developing, but a lot of developing countries have a limit on how much money foreign nationals can take out of their country because of their their dollar and their weakness. If there, if there's a flight of capital out of the country into safer Western countries, it devalues mm -hmm. their dollar and it obviously hurts them. So places like South Africa, Pakistan, 
you know, China, these types of places have limits on how much money can come out. India, I believe, has it as well. And the only reason I know that is because I've spoken to a lot of foreign nationals about the, yeah. the, 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 the want to invest in US dollars or the want to invest in uh, Western countries uh, to protect their money against, you know, governments coming and taking it or, you know, and just having yeah. a hedge uh, in US dollars or something like that. So it's it's very, very interesting. And I, I'm sure as you grow, uh, you're probably going to get more people coming towards you and say, hey, Charlotte, how the hell do I do this? But awesome stuff. So um, quickly pivoting to as we wrap up the show here, what are you seeing in the economy? What's your sort of two cents right now in where we're headed? How is that affecting your business? And what are you doing to pivot, if at all? Many say that we're heading to recession. And the pattern of how the Fed has been raising the rates reflect that we are going to a recession. And that's correct. So uh, what I would say is that the last time we went into a recession was 2008. That started um, and that that lasted about a year and a half, 22 months, and the rate went up and up and up and dropped by four or five points when it went when it went. So I expect the rate to drop uh, whenever from the start of the recession to the end, maybe 2024, maybe 2025. So um, it it would drop. So right now is really you need to hold on uh to your investments or buy more investments because the cap rates are rising because interest rates are rising so there are uh, good buys out there get good bargains out there remember if the cap rates are rising interest rates are rising you need to buy so you start investing in good assets right and when the interest rate falls then it's, it's the best time to sell so you have to follow the pattern of um the the fed rates and macroeconomics so from, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but from what I know about economics and the finance, uh, the background that I have, um, I expect it to drop uh, in the next a couple of years or so. So mm-hmm. I think this is actually a great opportunity for you, for those of you who want to make a lot of money. So, you know, in 2008, it created many, many millionaires. Mm-hmm. In 2000, in the dot-com bust, it created many, many millionaires. So you just have to grab your chance and see the pattern because history repeats itself. And I would say for mobile home parks, particularly, it is one of the best recession-resistant assets because when in a economic depression, a recession, uh, mobile home parks actually attract more tenants because we'll get more phone calls because um, it is a less expensive, it's affordable housing option. I completely agree. I, I'm buying assets right now. The hardest thing I've got is attracting equity because equity is, particularly for the retail space, it's it's tough. People are seeing the headlines. But the fact is cap rates have expanded 150 to 200 basis points literally in 12 months, right? Yeah. And so you can pick up assets at six, six and a half caps, even on multi, good multi. Yeah, yeah. Where that would have traded for 4% 18 months ago. That's you know, right, yeah. so it, it, it's, you know, I'm trying to tell investors like, guys, now this is when you need to buy. Lock in the interest rates. Know that it's going to drop eventually. Um, because the U.S. can't, you know, keep can't afford to keep them high because they've got to pay debt on their own money, right? So um, that it's it's going to be, you know, and we've got a an election around the corner. Regardless of what side of the aisle you were on, elections will cause some movement in interest rates, and that you, know, you can look back at history at that. So, uh, Charlotte, with that being said, I uh, really, really thank you for coming on the show. The, what we'd like to do at the end of every show is dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Number question number one is what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Keep reading books. Yes, I love that. Are you a, a physical reader or are you a audiobook listener? Both. Both. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I'm a personally, I, I need to read a physical book because it helps me go to sleep at night. <laughs> and it's, it's That's so, great. Yeah, yeah. Question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? One of my uh, Georgia Tech alumni uh, net network. Um, he was really my mentor. It introduced me to uh, many good connections that really helped me uh, with the business and provide me lots of mentorship, really, in finance and in business. Question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business that you can't run it without? And it could be a physical tool like a phone or a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't, the business will not exist without that, that tool. There is a software that we manage our investor portal with. It's called uh, Update Capital. And with that portal, our investors can log into their own account to view their investments, distributions, documents, and uh, all the other good stuff. So uh, it's, it's a really great interface to um, to keep investors one place, kind of their stuff in one place, and they can log into their account, kind of like your bank account, log mm -hmm. in as well to see your investment. Oh, that's on the equity side. On the management side, what software, any particular software you use, given the parks are so spread out across the country? Mm -hmm. So we, um, well, actually, we don't use a particular software for that. We have our internal uh, workflow. Um, you know, it's, it's all a teamwork, right? So your company is a team. You have your talents, you have your assets, uh, who work for, those people who work for you. The best tool is to have a workflow balance, uh, sorry, workflow process where it, it, it talks about when this happens and, you know, the, a chain of command, really, you need protocol, you need processes. So I, I would say the, the most important tool you need to develop and it's different for every company is a tool that defines your process. I love it. You know, I, I completely agree. And that's so important as you grow. And you mentioned people are assets within the business, your employees, they, they, they create the, the teamwork, so to speak, so you can help keep striving towards your goals. Question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure that you've experienced in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? When I did my first deal, I had to evict the first set of tenants I ever took in. I was very, it was a green, very a newbie. That was my first deal, right? That was many years ago. And what I learned from that is that a tenant is actually a business partner. When you sign that lease agreement with a tenant, you're entering in a business contract with that person. You want to make sure that this person is not a bad actor, has good moral compass, has good financial stability, responsibility, and that can be traced by their track record. So you want to do that background check. You want to talk to them. You want to interview them. You actually want to check their business references. It's like hiring an employee, entering a business contract. You know, so the worst thing you can do to yourself is that you have to evict them. It actually hurts everybody. The only person who wins in an eviction is the eviction attorney because he's the only one making a lot of money. But if you've gone through evictions before, you know the pain. I would say the biggest failure and lesson learned, biggest lesson learned. And I'm very, very fortunate that I learned that money I'm sorry. I learned that lesson on my own money in my first deal. And I failed mm -hmm. when I made that failure when I was young and I corrected myself quickly. So from then on, we have a very, very stringent process to um, having new tenant board. And ever since we implemented the process, uh, we've seen big improvement. They're really your stakeholders. Be careful. Yeah, no, I love how you've changed your mindset about it. It is a business partner. I think that's so, it's so important and probably one of the biggest takeaways I'm taking away from this. Uh, with that being said, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? That's right. The best way to reach me is to go to our website at johnscreekcapital.com or reach us directly at info at johnscreekcapital.com. And like I said earlier, um, I think I don't want to mislead uh, anybody by saying that I don't take any anybody from a foreign country. I just mean China. 
it's a different story right now. So if you're a listener and if you like to know about us and you're in a foreign country, not China, reach out to me, please. Awesome stuff. Well, look, Charlotte, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Just some of the things that I took away from today's show, I think that the number one nugget you just dropped just then was about the tenant is a business partner, right? And, th- and reframing the way in which you approach that person uh, and that it is a business contract and you need to do the background and you need to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep that person and they're going to pay their rent on time. I know I go through a lot of evictions and we're going through a lot more now as infl- inflation is still remaining high uh, and it's it's hurting the bottom the, the bottom dollar. I also love your tenacity to come to the US at 16 years of age. I think that's a freaking awesome story. You moved here without, you know, you had a, you had a dream, you had a vision and you moved here at 16. Most 16-year-old kids would not have done that. It comes with sacrifices, obviously not being able to see your family, which I know personally is hard. Uh, I hope you get back to China as many times as you can to see mum and dad. And if they're listening to the show, hello, mum and dad uh, from from the US. But with that being said, uh, huge thanks for coming on today's show. We really enjoyed the conversation. Did I leave anything out? No, it was perfect. Thank awesome you. Stuff. Well, thank you so much for dropping on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. You too. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with incredible information from Charlotte. If you do want to jump on her website, remember it's jonescreekcapital.com and you can go and visit her by also emailing her at info at jonescreekcapital.com if you're interested to learn more about her mobile home park investing or just be in her sphere and just learn a lot more about what she's doing because she's an incredible talent here in the commercial real estate world. With that being said, I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. The easiest way to give back to this show is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. We're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.